Do you know that certain peptides can benefit those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's? If you want to learn more about how peptides can help with thyroid autoimmunity and other chronic conditions, then you'll want to check out the brand new Peptide Summit hosted by Dr. Jenny Flagar. In fact, peptides play a huge role in helping Dr. Jenny overcome her Hashimoto's condition. To register for the free Peptide Summit, visit SaveMyThyroid.com forward slash peptides. Thank you for joining me on the Save My Thyroid podcast, where I help people save their thyroid and regain their health. My name is Dr. Eric Osansky, and if you have hyperthyroidism, including Graves' disease or toxic multinodule goiter, then you will especially benefit from these episodes. If you have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you also need to save your thyroid, and therefore you will also find many of the episodes to be valuable, including this one where I interviewed Dr. Diva Boone as we chatted about the parathyroid glands. The reason I want to interview Dr. Diva is because over the years, I've had a lot of people ask me about the parathyroid glands and hyperparathyroidism. As you know, my goal is to help people with hyperthyroidism and Hashimoto save their thyroid gland, but I haven't found anyone who was able to successfully reverse primary hyperparathyroidism naturally. And so Dr. Tiva will spend a few minutes chatting about surgery. However, even if you have no interest in learning about the parathyroid glands, we also have a great discussion about overdosing on vitamin D. And so if you currently supplement with higher doses of vitamin D like I do, then you'll want to tune into this episode. As usual, make sure you listen to the post-episode chat after the outro music as I'll expand on thyroid surgery risks, whether acupuncture can help with hyperparathyroidism, overdosing with vitamin D, and testing for parathyroid hormone. And you can access the show notes by visiting savemythyroid.com forward slash 133. Anyway, here's my interview with Dr. Diva. Welcome to the Save My Thyroid podcast, hosted by Dr. Eric Osansky. To stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics, visit SaveMyThyroid.com. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. Now let's head to the show. So I am very excited to chat with Dr. Diva Boone, who is one of the most experienced parathyroid surgeons in the United States. So obviously, we're going to be chatting about the parathyroid glands, also talk about vitamin D. But Dr. Diva was the medical director and senior surgeon at the Norman Parathyroid Center until 2020, when she left to open the Southwest Parathyroid Center, which is located in Phoenix, Arizona. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Diva. Hi, yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to talk with you about the parathyroid glands. And can you just give a brief background? Like, how did you decide that you were going to focus on the parathyroid glands? Was it something like you knew when you were in medical school or upon graduating? Did you have a personal experience or, yeah, how did you decide to focus on that? Yeah, no, it, it wasn't really that. I went to medical school not even knowing I was going to be a surgeon. I thought I was going to be a neurologist. And then during my rotations in third year of medical school, I really enjoyed surgery. And so decided to do general surgery. Didn't really decide on parathyroids until the end of of that residency. I really liked endocrine surgeons. I did a fellowship in endocrine surgery. And then I went down to Tampa to work with the Norman Parathyroid Center because they do just parathyroid surgery. And I was just really impressed with the setup they had and the, the way they did the operation. And so decided to just 
focus on that forever. It is a really nice operation because you can really help a lot of people. A lot of people feel pretty bad beforehand and they feel much better afterwards on average. And so it's pretty satisfying to be able to help people with this operation. So for those who are not familiar with the parathyroid glands, can you explain the function of them? Sure. Yeah. So the parathyroid glands are the the forgotten cousin of the endocrine glands because a lot of people don't know about them. They are right next to the thyroid. So your thyroid, is, I'm sure your listeners already know, but your thyroid is this butterfly-shaped gland at the base of the neck. The parathyroid glands, they sound like thyroid because they have thyroid in the name, But that just comes from the fact that they're right next to the thyroid. So when they were discovered, we didn't know what they were. So they were called para next to the thyroid. So parathyroid glands, there's four of them. They are typically right around the thyroid, right next to it, two on each side. And they exist solely to regulate your calcium. So if you think about it, there aren't any other minerals in your body that have a whole organ dedicated to them. So they just regulate calcium. It's also the only thing that you have four of, four organs of. So they're pretty cool. They are tiny. They are about the size of a grain of rice. Each one of them is about about the size of a grain of rice. So there's these tiny little glands, but they're really important because they do regulate your calcium. Why do you need a separate gland to regulate calcium? (laughs) So when most people think about calcium, they think about bones, right? All the billboards got milk. Calcium is really important for your bones. That actually is the main storage location of calcium in your body. And that is calcium is what makes your bones hard. But the reason why the parathyroid glands exist is really not to regulate your bone calcium. It's to regulate the blood calcium because that actually is really important in itself. Your brain, your muscles, all your nerves, they all depend on having a set level of calcium in order to function properly. So for your muscles to contract properly, for your brain to have correct signaling and good signaling, you actually use calcium during all of that process. So calcium is necessary for that reason. It's necessary even in other areas where the electrical signaling is important, like in your heart. When your heart beats, it's because there's an electrical signal going through it. Calcium is necessary for that. It's necessary for blood clotting. And so for all of these reasons, your calcium in your blood is kept in a very tight range. Sometimes other things can vary, but your calcium typically does not vary that much because your parathyroid glands are keeping in a really tight range so that your brain, nervous system can all function properly. So you don't want calcium to be too low. You don't want calcium to be too high. That goes really with any nutrient, but When people focus on really any mineral or any nutrient, they're probably more concerned about deficiencies. Okay, I'm really concerned about having low calcium, and that might be a factor with osteoporosis, but what you see a lot in your practice is the opposite, elevated calcium levels. Yes. So it's interesting because, yes, low calcium is a problem, but what I see a lot more of is high calcium because I treat primary hyperparathyroidism. When the parathyroids have a problem, typically it's not a deficiency of PTH, it's that they have too much parathyroid hormone. So the parathyroid glands, as they're pretty simple, they make one hormone called PTH or parathyroid hormone, and that PTH is just regulating calcium and phosphorus, but that's a separate issue. But really, you can think of it as doing kind of one thing with one hormone. 
And when you have a really low calcium level, and this is just important to understand this thermostat concept, when you have a really low calcium level, your parathyroid glands, their whole job in life is to get that calcium up. So they sense that if you set your thermostat to 68 degrees and it starts to go below that, your thermostat will sense that, it turns on, the heat comes on, it brings the temperature back up to 68, and then the heating can turn back off. When that happens in your body, when the calcium level drops too low, parathyroid glands turn on, they make more hormone. The hormone then raises the calcium by doing a few things, like taking calcium out of your bones to put it in the blood. And then as the calcium rises and goes back up to the normal range, the parathyroid glands can turn off, make less hormone. If the calcium level goes too high for any reason, the parathyroid glands turn off. Just like if your temperature went to 90 degrees, your heating should turn off. So the parathyroid glands are regulating things throughout the day. And I do sometimes see people with low calcium because for whatever reason, they have a problem getting calcium. If they have issues with chronic diarrhea or any problem with absorption from a gastric bypass, that kind of thing, they can have problems keeping their calcium up. But when you have a problem with the parathyroid glands, typically you see a high calcium level. And that is because when you have a parathyroid problem, most of the time it's due to a small benign tumor in the gland. And that tumor is acting inappropriately, meaning it's just making hormone, even though it shouldn't, just keeps making it. And that means that parathyroid hormone continues to dump out, continues to raise the calcium level. So you end up with these high calcium levels. Now, most people, when they see that, they actually think it's a good thing because they look at their labs and they are looking for deficiencies. If they see that their potassium is a little bit low, they, they clue into that. If they see their vitamin D is a little bit low, they clue into that. If they see their calcium is a little bit low, they might worry about that. When they see it's a little bit high, they think, oh, that's probably good. That's probably good for my bones, right? To have a little more calcium because I've been taught that I should take calcium from my bones. My calcium's on the high end. That's a great thing. And they don't realize that actually that's as much of a problem as having a low calcium, possibly more. So you really want to pay attention to keeping that calcium in range, not letting it go too low or too high because remember your brain, your nerves, your muscles, they all want that calcium to be in a certain range and anywhere outside that range will cause problems. All right. So thanks for explaining that. And so it's a negative feedback mechanism, similar to thyroid. Like if you have low thyroid hormone, you have TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone that's signaling to the thyroid to produce more thyroid hormone. And so under normal circumstances, if serum calcium was low, you'd want to see the parathyroid hormone elevated or, or high, again, signaling for the parathyroids to, to increase the calcium levels, correct? Right. And the, the parathyroid glands do that, like I said, through a couple of ways. But one of the ways that they get the calcium up is PTH actually stimulates the bones to release calcium. So that actually is how patients with these parathyroid tumors get osteoporosis. So you see that your calcium is high, but actually your bones don't have enough calcium because you see your bone density dropping. And that's connected. The reason your calcium in your blood is high is because it's coming out of your bones. You actually want it to go back in, but, but that is part of primary hyperparathyroidism or having too much PTH or a parathyroid tumor. And how common is primary hyperparathyroidism? Unfortunately, it's more common than most people realize. So as I said, a lot of people don't even know what the parathyroid glands are. They don't know what they do. And 
the issue with a lot of patients, so just to get to exactly how many, it's hard to say, but it does increase as you get older and it is more common in women. So probably even up to 1% of women over the age of 50 will get this. So it's most common in postmenopausal women. Having said that, I have had teenage boys with this, so it doesn't mean that you can't get it if you're younger. There are lots of people who get it when they're younger and get it as men, but about 75% of the patients are women, and the average age is probably about 60. And that, I think, gets into why the disease is underdiagnosed, because if you think about it, it tends to happen in women who are around the age of menopause. So a lot of the symptoms tend to get blamed on that. So if you've gone through menopause in the last 10 years and you start to tell your doctor that you're tired and you can't sleep at night, the immediate thing is not to check your calcium. The immediate thing is to respond with, this is probably menopause. That is partly why the disease gets overlooked a little bit. Another reason is that our labs give a very broad range for calcium so that if you get your labs, and I encourage everybody to get their own labs, get the results keep them for yourself in a file so that you have them and you can review them. But if you look at your labs, a lot of times what you're doing and what your doctor is doing is just scanning down for anything that's abnormal. They put a little abnormal note or they make it red. Oftentimes you get so many labs, you're just looking for that. But unfortunately with calcium, a lot of the labs give a range that is both too far on the low end and on the high end. So it'll say 8.5 to 10.5 is normal range when really it's more like 9.2 to 9.9 is the normal range. 10.0 can be normal. But once you get up further in age, your calcium level of about age 40, your calcium level shouldn't be in the tens. But the labs don't really adjust for that. And so you end up sometimes with people who have had high calcium for years, but it didn't register until the calcium went to 11. And so that's part of the reason why. But I also think, I think a big part is that a lot of patients are having these symptoms that are nonspecific. And they go to their doctor and it gets blamed on either getting older or menopause. Can you talk a little bit more about the ranges? So you mentioned that as we get older, you shouldn't have a calcium level that's higher. So the serum calcium should decrease as you get older? Yeah. So children actually can have pretty high calcium levels, their calcium levels. And this is in US ranges, right? So milligrams per deciliter, their calcium levels are often in the tens, even up to 11. And then it drops as you get older so that in your twenties, a lot of people will have calcium levels in the tens, but a lot are in the nines by that point. In the thirties, Maybe you can have some calcium levels in the low tens, but it drops with time. And by the time you get to age 40, most of your calcium levels should be in that nines range. And as I said, mid to high nines, like 9.2, 9.3 to 10.0. And if you're outside that range, usually it's it indicates a problem. Okay. So if it's above 10, especially above 40. Yeah. And- or 10.0. So in even a little bit, and it does get the tighter as you get older. So if I see a 40-year-old with a 10.1, I want to check things out. That's not definitive yet. But if I see an 80-year-old with a 10.1 and they've got a PTH that's either normal or high, that's primary hyperparathyroidism. But the age thing is it's a little, there's no clear cutoff. It's not like you wake up and you're 40 and suddenly your calcium level is a different level. It slowly happens over time and everybody's a little bit different. But in general, if you're 60 years old, really all your calcium levels should be 
10.0 or under. You don't want it too low, obviously, but you don't want it to go above 10.0. So if you see it above 10.0, as you mentioned, you then you look like you order a PTH, a parathyroid hormone test to see if that is elevated. And if that's elevated, then that's typically indicating hyperparathyroidism. That's the most common scenario, right? Is a high calcium and a high PTH. Interestingly, you don't need the high PTH. And that's why I went over the thermostat analogy. Think for a second, if your house is 90 degrees and your heating is on, it's on low, but it's still on, then that's a problem, right? Your thermostat clearly is not sensing that it's 90 degrees because you should have turned the heat off or it should have kicked in and the the heating should have come off. So it's like that with parathyroid glands. If you've got a calcium of 11 and your parathyroid hormone level is in the normal range, that's an inappropriate response, right? Because your parathyroid glands should turn off. All of your normal parathyroid glands are turning off. And so you'll have a very low PTH level if something else is causing the high calcium. If you've got a a PTH that's normal range with a high calcium, that's usually primary hyperparathyroidism. We were chatting a little bit before and what hyperthyroidism, a, a lot of people who listen to this have hyperthyroidism, whether it's Graves or toxic multinodular And some people with hyperthyroidism will have an elevated serum calcium as well. And so the way to know if it's related to the thyroid or if it's hyperparathyroidism is what you just said. If someone has hyperthyroidism, they're Serum calcium is 10.2. So you look at the parathyroid hormone and see is it elevated or is it normal because it should be on the lower side normally. Or low, lower side. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you look at the overall picture because there aren't that many things that can cause high calcium, first of all. So most of the time, just if you're just gonna if you're gonna place a bet on somebody with high calcium, you're gonna bet that they have primary hyperparathyroidism because that just by far is the most common thing. But there are these scenarios with hyperthyroidism where you do get high calcium levels. The key, so with all of that, you know, these issues, I want to see the history. So I want to go back and see, you know, some of these patients, their calcium was high before they developed hyperthyroidism. Doesn't seem like that was probably it. Some people will, they will have, when their thyroid disease is particularly active, their calcium may rise. And this can be true with something like sarcoidosis too. So if they have very active sarcoidosis, You'll see the calcium rise, and then once it's treated, the calcium goes back to normal. And that should be true with the thyroid as well. If you've got, if you're under control, if you haven't really had many issues, your labs are typically going to go back to normal. But tracking those over time with the calcium and the PTH and the vitamin D level all together is the best way to figure it out. All right. So you mentioned vitamin D. So vitamin D also, in some cases, can cause elevated serum calcium, correct? Yes. So vitamin D is one of my favorite topics because it is intimately related to calcium and parathyroid hormone. And a lot of people really like vitamin D. A lot of people take vitamin D. I take vitamin D, but there are things you need to know about vitamin D. First, it's not really a vitamin because your body does produce it. And second, it's a hormone. So you have to treat it like any other hormone. And I think we know when we're talking about sex hormones or steroids, which are hormones, we know you've got to treat those carefully because they're going to have these, they can have these systemic effects. But vitamin D 
doesn't always have that reputation because it's a supplement people can buy over the counter. And so I, I think it's sometimes not treated with the same respect. But but vitamin D, it is essential. It is really essential for calcium metabolism. And one of the main things that vitamin D does or active vitamin D is help your intestines absorb calcium. So if you have a severe deficiency in vitamin D, you won't be able to absorb calcium appropriately. And this can lead to things like rickets. And this is how low vitamin D causes a lot of these issues is that you're not absorbing the calcium or properly handling the calcium. So vitamin D is essential for that. The way that it's involved with the parathyroids is that the parathyroids, part of the way that they get your calcium level up. So remember I said they sense that low calcium, they turn on, they make more hormone. Part of what that hormone does is activate or stimulate the activation of vitamin D that happens in your kidneys. Your vitamin D exists in multiple forms in your body. This is really confusing too, but we'll keep it simple and just talk about the inactive form and the active form of vitamin D. To activate that form, you need parathyroid hormone. You need an enzyme. That enzyme is just directly stimulated by PTH. So PTH ramps up the conversion of inactive vitamin D to the active vitamin D, which then goes to the intestines and helps your intestines absorb calcium. So that's part of the ways that it will raise your calcium level. The way that this gets confusing, and this gets really confusing for doctors as well. So I have to explain this to doctors all the time also. So when you have a parathyroid tumor, you will end up with a low vitamin D level and a high calcium level. You should not treat that that vitamin D is not, it's not real exactly. What they're measuring is the inactive form. That is the form that we measure on people. If I just say, I want you to get a vitamin D checked and you go to the lab and I check off vitamin D, they're going to draw the inactive form, vitamin D 25 hydroxy. That's the form that is really accurate for most people. And it indicates your overall vitamin D status better than the other forms. The other forms tend to break down more easily and uh, they're not as easy to measure. Now we can measure the active form and we do sometimes, but in most cases we don't because it tends to break down quickly. It's not a good assessment of your kind of overall vitamin D status. Inactive vitamin D is accurate for almost everyone, but it is not accurate for people with primary hyperparathyroidism because go back to what I said about the PTH, it activates the vitamin D. So your inactive form drops because it's getting converted to the active form. So if I measure your active form in primary hyperparathyroidism, you'll see that it's actually high, but your inactive form is low. We only measure the inactive form. And so because of that, most patients with parathyroid disease will get diagnosed with vitamin D deficiency, and they will automatically be prescribed vitamin D. Why is that a problem? If your calcium is already high and you start taking more vitamin D, you can raise your calcium into a dangerous level by taking more vitamin D. It is a little bit complicated, but basically if you see a low vitamin D, don't immediately treat it. You want to know your calcium level as well. And if your calcium level is high, you don't want to take it. Now, the thing that is really confusing and, and stop me if I talk too much, because I love talking about vitamin D. The thing that is really confusing is that when you're deficient, vitamin D then causes your calcium level to be low. And that low calcium will then stimulate your parathyroids and raise your PTH. Now, this is a separate condition. This is called secondary hyperparathyroidism. 
because your parathyroid glands are active, but only because they have to be because you're not getting enough calcium. So they get activated, they make more PTH to try to get the calcium up if you have a severe vitamin D deficiency. In that case, you want to treat that with vitamin D because that will help get your calcium up, which will bring your PTH down. The place where doctors get confused is that they see the high PTH and the low vitamin D and they ignore the calcium and they give you more vitamin D, but that's not going to solve the underlying problem. The underlying problem is a parathyroid tumor. Hey, this is Dr. Eric, and if you're looking to do everything you can to save your thyroid gland, in addition to listening to this podcast, there are a few different ways we can help you. First of all, I've written a book on hyperthyroidism called Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease, as well as a book called Hashimoto's Triggers, which of course is on Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and you can find both of these on Amazon, as well as other websites where books are sold. Second, you could also join my Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Healing Community by visiting autoimmunethyroidgroup.com. And finally, if you want to get personal help from me, you could visit the website workwithdrerick.com. Just to let you know, I only see a limited number of new patients each month, and I do require anyone interested to complete a brief online application before working with me. And now back to the show. So just to clarify, what someone who does not have primary hyperparathyroidism, you do recommend the 25-hydroxy vitamin D test, like the inactive form and not the yeah. active form of vitamin D as far as testing. I do. Really, For like I said, for most people, that form is the most accurate and definitely the easiest to get. And like I said, if you just order it from the lab, if you just check off vitamin D, that's the one you're going to get. And I do recommend that. There are two populations really where it's not accurate. Primary hyperparathyroidism is one and sarcoidosis is the other because they have also have an abnormal conversion to the active form. So there are those two scenarios where it's not going to be as accurate, but for almost everybody else, I would track the inactive form. Also because all of our recommendations and studies are done on the inactive form. So we don't have a lot of data on how to interpret or what to do with the active form and how where to adjust it to. Well, when we're talking about guidelines, we're talking about the inactive form. I agree. I, I test the inactive form 25-OH vitamin D. So thanks for mentioning that. And so taking too much vitamin D can increase serum calcium. What do you like to see vitamin D levels at? Some will say at least 50 nanograms per milliliter. Some will say like between 60 and 80. Every now and then some will say like greater than 80. Yeah. Yeah. This is really controversial. And I I do love this topic. So first remember that I see a, I have a selected patient base. So the people who come to me are people generally who are worried about their parathyroids and typically have high calcium levels. And I will just say that when I see the high calcium level, I always check the PTH and the vitamin D levels. And if the vitamin D level is very high, there is a pretty good chance that it's causing the high calcium, as long as the PTH levels on the low normal to low range. So what I have them do first is I have them stop the vitamin D. Now you're wondering, what level of vitamin D do I see it? I see it happen over 50 nanograms per mil. Now, lots of people can tolerate a vitamin D of 60 and not get high calcium. Those aren't the patients I tend to see. I tend to see ones where if it's over 50, they end up with calcium levels pushing into the tens. And it's not always recognized by their doctors that's a high calcium, but I know 
that's a high calcium and that's going to cause the symptoms of high calcium. And so I typically recommend people keep it in the 30 to 50 range unless they're using vitamin D to treat something else. And I always encourage people to treat vitamins, any nutrient, any supplement you take, treat it as a medication. So have a reason why you're taking it. And there are people who are taking higher doses of certain vitamins in order to treat a condition or try to mitigate a condition or alleviate a condition. And that is okay, as long as you know what you're taking and what the risks are. And with vitamin D, the thing you have to know is that there is a risk that your calcium level will go too high. So if you're on high doses of vitamin D, if your vitamin D level is 70, one, I I don't know that there's not a lot of evidence that it really is beneficial to be 70 versus 50. But if you wanted to do that and keep it there, all I would say is watch your calcium level and make sure it's not going into the high range because there are people who can tolerate vitamin D levels of 80 and their calcium level stays normal. Then there are people who get a vitamin D level 60 and their calcium is 10.5 as a result of it. And they're going to get the symptoms of high calcium. And you have to tailor it. There isn't one amount for everyone. But in general, I encourage people to keep it in the 30 to 50 range because we have a lot of evidence that vitamin D deficiency, meaning true deficiency like under 15, does cause problems. And we likely have problems with under 30. That's not as clear. The evidence is not as good, but I think that I think it's reasonable enough to say that there may be issues with under 30. So keeping it in the 30 to 50 range is a nice medium for me where I don't see it causing high calcium. And I think you're probably getting most of the benefits of vitamin D in that range. So that's where I stand on it. I know I'm going against a lot of other people, but that's because I see these effects. I see a lot of patients come to me with high calcium and I do have to caution them to keep it in that range. So if you don't want to keep an eye on your calcium all the time, then 30 to 50 for vitamin D is a good range. Okay. So 30 to 50 is where you like to see it. If someone that's insists on taking yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. If, if someone insists on taking or are having it where the level is 50 or greater, you would just say, monitor the serum calcium just to make sure it's not elevated. And if it's elevated, it very well might be due to vitamin D. There is a chance someone could have still like hyperparathyroidism. Someone's taken too much vitamin D too. They could have that or it could be a combination of both. But first thing is look at that serum calcium. Exactly. And sometimes it is. Sometimes the vitamin D will uncover parathyroid disease. Maybe it was growing, the, the tumor was growing, and then as you take more vitamin D, it easily slips into the tens, and that that can be early parathyroid disease. But I do see it where it starts going to the tens, and I also see it where it happens over time. And vitamin D, remember, is a fat soluble vitamin. So the longer you take these high doses, the more it's collecting up in your body. And it can take a while for it to drop, even if you stopped entirely taking any. And so I see these people who will be on these very high doses. And what I consider a high dose is 5,000 units a day, which is what a lot of people are on. But if you take that for a short period of time, it's unlikely that you're going to see bad effects from it. But I see these people who are on 5,000 units a day for 10 years, and then they didn't get high calcium level for the first few years. And it took a few years for the calcium level to start rising. And so in their mind, they're thinking, I've been on this for so long, this can't be the problem. It could be because you do see these effects add up over the years. So based on what you just said, if someone, let's say they're taking vitamin D, let's say their vitamin D levels are like 60 or 70, and then their serum calcium 
is over 10, would you recommend for them to just go ahead and test parathyroid hormone just to make sure it's not high or medium? Or would you just say, uh, you probably would say stop the vitamin D anyway, but would you say another option, stop the vitamin D and wait a few months because it could take quite a while for that to drop significantly to impact the serum calcium if that is indeed the cause of the elevated serum calcium? So first, I don't want to miss a parathyroid tumor. And so I will have them recheck labs with calcium, PTH, and vitamin D. And typically when it's the vitamin D causing it, the PTH will be on that low end of normal if it's not. So I do have patients where their calcium is 10.5, their vitamin D is 70, but their PTH is 100. That's primary hyperparathyroidism because the PTH level is definitely not responding appropriately to that calcium. So I know that's a parathyroid problem. If the PTH level, on the other hand, is 25 on that lower end of normal, that's more consistent with vitamin D. And I do have them stop vitamin D regardless, whether it's primary hyperparathyroidism or not, I tell them to stop vitamin D immediately because your calcium is high. The high calcium is what causes most of the symptoms and problems with parathyroid disease. And so you want to stop the vitamin D, but you want to stop that and then repeat labs. And yeah, three months is the earliest I'll recheck. If it's that high because you've been on high doses for many years, it may take six months for it to drop down below 50. And that's really what I'm looking for because once it gets down below 50, that's when I see the calcium drop back to normal. So that's what I have people do. And sometimes it takes six months, but it will happen. All right. Thanks for explaining that, Dr. Diva. Now, talking about primary hyperparathyroidism, if someone has that benign adenoma, is there anything naturally, any natural options out there? Because again, a, a lot of people tuning into this, I'm all about when it comes to hyperthyroidism and Graves and Hashimoto's trying to do things to improve the health of the immune system, try to address the cause of the problem, as are many other functional medicine practitioners, natural healthcare practitioners, but any other options besides surgery when it comes to the benign adenomas? Sure. So first, I will just say I am a huge proponent of lifestyle medicine and modifying your lifestyle, your diet in order to treat and prevent disease. And for the thyroid, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of surgery for Graves' disease. I think that really it's that should be the last resort option after you've tried other things to control your thyroid. Having said that, there are some things where surgery is just necessary. And for parathyroid tumors, there really isn't any lifestyle modification that you can make that will affect it because it is a small tumor. It's benign. It's not a cancer, but it's a small tumor growing inside the, the parathyroid gland. And there's nothing really that will get rid of it or cause it to go away without taking it out, at least anything we have right now. So the only treatment is removing this. And, but I think that in that case, it, it really makes sense to have the operation because it does have such a huge effect and you can cure it. For most people, once you take that parathyroid tumor out or that parathyroid gland's disease, your other parathyroid glands react normally. And then you prevent all of the potential medications you might need to take later on down the road if you left it in place. Because a lot of people with parathyroid disease get high blood pressure, they get cardiac arrhythmias, they have fatigue, and they have constipation and reflux. So they end up on all of these other medications to try to treat the symptoms of this when really a simple operation can cure it and prevent these complications. 
So now, prior to going live, we were, as you mentioned, we were talking about graves and how you recommend not having surgery unless if, as a last resort. Again, there's a time and place. But one thing you mentioned is like with surgery of the thyroid, like complications are common. But with the parathyroid surgery, I guess it all comes down to also choosing the right surgeon too. Same thing with the thyroid. If you go, you wouldn't want to get thyroid surgery from someone who just did 10 thyroid surgeries, or at least I wouldn't want to go to someone who was not experienced. And obviously you focus on that. So can you talk a little bit more about that, like potential complications, like the risk factors of, of this such a surgery? Yeah. So especially with something like Graves disease, that is my main reason for not wanting to push for surgery because the complication rate is high. And actually, one of the big complications with surgery for Graves' disease is hypoparathyroidism, meaning all the parathyroid glands can be injured during the operation. And that is a, it's a serious, can be lifelong complication that can be very hard to manage if you don't have any parathyroids. And the reason it's more of an issue than with other thyroid operations, because not all thyroid operations are equal. Surgery for Graves' disease is one of the riskier ones because of all that inflammation around the thyroid. It makes it very difficult. And I've operated on Graves thyroids. They are hard to deal with. They are very temperamental and they bleed easily and they're stiff and it's, it's hard to get around them. So for all those reasons, when you do a Graves thyroid and you're taking that out, it is very easy to injure the parathyroid glands around it and not even realize it and, and also injure the nerve that controls your voice. So for all of those reasons, I say Try to treat it medically, try to treat it with lifestyle medicine, medications, even radioactive iodine before I would recommend surgery. But there are patients who need surgery for Graves and they should get it. And if you do that, go to a surgeon who just does thyroid operations. There are people who really specialize in this and are mostly doing thyroid operations or solely doing thyroid operations. And that's who I would want doing my operation. But okay, so parathyroid surgery tends to be a very safe operation. It has some of the same risks as with thyroid surgery and with any operation, really. So anytime someone takes a knife to any part of your body, there is a risk of bleeding. That is true for parathyroid disease like any other operation, but, but it's pretty low. There's always a risk to those nerves that control your voice, but again, pretty low risk. And finally, there's a risk that you would injure or remove all the parathyroid glands, but typically you're trying not to do that. In general, it's a very safe operation. It lasts under an hour. It's usually about half an hour to see all the glands. And with this, as with other operations, you do want to get somebody who is experienced in this. A lot of general surgeons are credentialed to perform thyroid surgery and parathyroid surgery. It doesn't mean that you would want them doing your parathyroid or thyroid operation, Parathyroid surgery can be pretty hard if you're not experienced in it. Those glands, as I mentioned, they're a grain of rice, and it could be a grain of rice that's stuck to the nerve that controls your voice. You really don't want somebody inexperienced digging around in there. You want somebody who is going to be able to evaluate it and remove the tumor safely and quickly to, in order to just reduce those complications, get you out of the hospital. It's a same-day procedure. So yeah, it, it's a very safe operation in general, as long as you have someone experienced doing your operation. If you had to take a guess, how many surgeries have you done? So for me, I've done at least over 4,000, which makes me 
the most experienced person on the Western US, I think, because I've only done parathyroid operations for the last 10 years. That's all I focus on. For most surgeons, I, to me, I wouldn't want a surgeon who just did this operation once a week to do my operation. A lot of the guidelines will say that you're an expert if you do 50 a year, which is about one a week. And that's not very many. I think to get good at this, you have to do a lot of operations. And, and that just, it means specializing in the area, which a lot of surgeons aren't doing. I will say the thing I do differently is that I look at all four parathyroid glands in the operating room. It's the most accurate way and most reliable way to actually assess the parathyroid glands. Scans and imaging studies are so often wrong with the parathyroids because they're so tiny to begin with. You can't see normal glands and you can't even see small tumors. So I do, I have a lot of patients who have completely negative scans and this is weird to think about because when I say you've got a small tumor, most people in their mind are thinking, okay, you know that because either you see a lump or you feel a lump or you see it on the scan. If I say you've got a tumor, you're going to, you're thinking about a scan or like a lump you have on your arms. With parathyroid disease, it's not like that. I can't feel it on your neck. We can't see it. A lot of times on imaging studies, we don't see it at all. Even with the most advanced imaging studies we have, they may not show up. And so you have to base it on the labs. And I know from your labs, you've got a parathyroid tumor. It's a little weird. Say, so yeah, I don't see anything on the scans, but I know you've got a parathyroid tumor. If I go in and look at your parathyroid glands, I'm going to be able to figure it out. But that means going in there and being able to find all four safely and quickly. And uh, for most surgeons, they often won't do that. They will rely solely on imaging. So they will only operate if they have a positive scan, and then they'll only go after that gland. And that does lead to a lot of patients needing further surgery in the future. I avoid that by just looking at all four parathyroid glands during that one operation. So it's a one and done procedure. All right. No, thanks for bringing that up. That's important to, really important to know because, yeah, I guess if a surgeon relies on finding it on a scan and if it's there, but it just doesn't show up on the scan, then that person's going to be just continuing to have the symptoms associated with hyper, with elevated calcium levels, hypercalcemia. And yeah, but is that eventually they'll probably get the surgery when another when they get maybe a, a second or third opinion. When they find then, another surgeon. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. You shared a lot of information, Dr. Diva. Is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you or any last words that you have for those that might be suspecting that they might have an issue with the parathyroid glands? I think that's covering a lot of it. I It's a lot of information in a short period of time. And if your fans don't know about much about the parathyroids, it's overwhelming. But I would say my advice to all people is to get your own medical records, get your lab results, look at them yourself. And if you're having symptoms to get a second opinion, read through your results yourself and do your research. Some doctors really don't like patients looking up their illnesses on Google I'm fine with it. I think that's great. You can learn a lot online and through reading. And a lot of my patients figure this out themselves because they're really tired and they have headaches every day and they can't figure out why. And they finally get their lab reports themselves and they see that the calcium is high and has been high, but nobody's mentioned it. 
And and then they finally find me online and, and get treated for it and they feel better. But it's one of those things where your doctors may miss it. This is one where they often don't take it as seriously, or they'll give a wait and see attitude to just watch it over time. And so you really need to kind of take control of your health and remember that nobody's going to care about your health as much as you do. So you need to advocate for yourself. And that's definitely true with Graves' disease as well. There's some things that we learn for Graves' disease uh, that I have learned are you know not true and, and disagree with and have changed my practice based on that. So, so yeah, just take control of your own health. All right. Thank you so much. And where can people find out more about you? Sure. My center is Southwest Parathyroid Center. If you go to southwestparathyroid.com, you'll find me. And also I have my own Facebook page and answer a bunch of questions there. And you can go to parathyroidqna.com where I answer a lot of questions too. Like any question about parathyroid disease. All right. Wonderful. I'll, of course, make sure to include the links in the show notes. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Diva. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the parathyroid glands, hyperparathyroidism, as well as also diving into vitamin D. Sure. Yes. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, if people have questions, they can always reach out to me through my website too. Thank you for listening to the Save My Thyroid podcast. If you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe to stay up to date on the latest thyroid health-related topics. And to get your free thyroid and immune health restoration action points checklist, visit SaveMyThyroidChecklist.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was a great interview with Dr. Diva. It was admittedly a little weird chatting about surgery when my goal is to prevent people from getting thyroid surgery, but it was also very interesting to hear that she isn't a big fan of thyroid surgery. As she mentioned that she did some thyroid surgeries in the past and that complications are common. Of course, now her focus and for years, her focus has been on parathyroid gland surgery. I guess also what she said about finding someone who's experienced, like maybe there were a lot of complications when she did thyroid surgery because she wasn't really a thyroid surgery expert. So it sounded like maybe before she focused on surgery of the parathyroid glands that she did some other surgeries uh, or I don't know, maybe she just did thyroid surgery. It really didn't get into detail, but it was interesting also that she suggested that she would prefer radioactive iodine over surgery for those with hyperthyroidism. And so I don't agree with that. I mean, I'm not a fan of either one, but I know if I had to choose one or the other, I would choose thyroid surgery. And again, knowing that there's risks and as far as complications being high, I mean, there it depends, I guess, what you consider high. Like I think it may be like 2% 3%, which again is, I mean, to me, it is kind of high, like two, three out of every people, but still figure greater than 90% chance that you're going to be okay and not have damaged parathyroid glands and laryngeal nerve won't be damaged. Again, there there is that small percentage, but still, so two, 3%, definitely greater odds than winning the lottery. But still, if it's 3%, then there's a 97% chance that you won't have damage to the parathyroid glands and or laryngeal nerve. But also it comes down to choosing a surgeon, like if someone's going to have thyroid surgery, someone who has a lot of experience. And again, not just 10 total, or I mean, she said even like 40, 50 a year, I think she said, which to me would be a lot for someone who's in practice for maybe 10 years and they've done 500 surgeries 
but by comparison, she's done, she said, like over 4,000 surgeries. So anyway, if I had to choose between radioactive iodine and thyroid surgery, I'm pretty sure I would choose surgery just because the thought of the radioactive iodine and there are risks with that too. She just isn't as familiar just because that's not her specialty as far as, you know, giving radioactive iodine and, you know, just seeing some of the nightmare stories. And, you know, of course there are restrictions after getting radioactive iodine, just, you know, not being able to get pregnant for quite a while and then some countries being quarantined. So yeah, definitely not completely safe, but like I said, it was very interesting to get that perspective. So as far as there not being a natural solution for primary hyperparathyroidism, I mean, again, it's not my area of expertise. So if anybody is listening to this who has had success or knows someone who had success reversing, again, primary hyperparathyroidism where there is like a benign adenoma, I did have one patient who tried acupuncture and, and tried other things like acupuncture and herbal medicine. And that didn't work. Not a surprise. I mean, I'm a big fan of acupuncture, but I didn't expect acupuncture to help. And it was, she was working with an acupuncturist who didn't just do acupuncture, but again, did other things as well. And the acupuncturist seemed confident that he could help her reverse it, but wasn't the case. As of recording this, I don't think she has gotten the surgery yet. She probably should have gotten it quite a while ago for the parathyroid gland. So again, this is one of those situations where like if I had it, maybe I would look for a natural solution, but just from what I've seen out there, there's none I'm aware of. So yeah, I, I probably would fly out to Dr. Diva because again, I definitely would want someone like her who has experience doing that. So, and then, like I said, same thing with thyroid surgery, you know, hopefully I'm never in a situation where I need thyroid surgery. And if I did, I honestly don't know who I would go to because I... I haven't really researched a thyroid surgeon who has helped like thousands of people, like done thousands of thyroid surgeries. So yeah, definitely would have to do some research if that was the case where I didn't need thyroid surgery. But anyway, so overdosing with vitamin D. So that was an interesting conversation. I take 5,000 IUs per day, which I mentioned during the interview. I didn't mention right away, but I wasn't sure if I was going to mention it, but I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll just mention it. Because again, a lot of people do that. A lot of practitioners do it. And again, it doesn't mean that she's right and I'm wrong. That's her opinion as far as she recommends 1,000 to 2,000 IUs per day. And I think she said she just takes her herself. She just takes like 5,000 per week. So she's getting less than that per day. But she likes to see the levels between 30 and 50. I mean, I like to see mine in the... 50s, if it's like in the 60s, I mean, not too long ago was in the 70s, like low 70s, but I'm happy if mine's in the 50s. So like she said, between 30 and 50. So I guess you could say if mine's a little bit higher, but yeah, admittedly, like when I saw mine was a 70, I wasn't like concerned or anything like that. I was just grateful that it wasn't really low. So anyway, very interesting, definitely different perspectives when it comes to vitamin D but I guess what it really comes down to is just making sure you monitor the serum calcium. So if you're taking vitamin D and if your serum calcium is a 10 or greater, then yeah, then you almost definitely would want to cut back on the vitamin D and test for parathyroid hormone. And if, assuming everything looks good with parathyroid hormone, then eventually retest 
the vitamin Z level and also test the serum calcium level. Keep an eye on that just to make sure it's decreasing. And then speaking of parathyroid hormones, so not something I recommend to everybody, and I don't think she does either. I mean, she might recommend it to most people because that's what she deals with. But pretty much if anytime someone has an elevated serum calcium, she tests for it. Now, in my situation, again, I deal with people with hyperthyroidism, and if someone has like a calcium of 10.2, I don't always, or at least up until this interview, I can't say I always tested for parathyroid hormone because I assume that it most likely was related to the hyperthyroidism, but I guess I shouldn't make that assumption that maybe it is a good idea to look at parathyroid hormone, which again, should be, according to her, should be low, kind of that negative feedback mechanism. So if you're taking too much vitamin D, or if you have hyperthyroidism and you have elevated serum calcium, parathyroid hormone should be low. But if you have a benign adenoma that's causing primary hyperparathyroidism, then that PTH should be, is going to be high or it might be normal. Again, it even shouldn't be normal, should be on the lower side. So again, that was a good conversation just to know that like if your calcium is high and you test for parathyroid hormone and it's normal, that doesn't mean that everything is, is good. And again, that's something I didn't know. Like I would have made the assumption in the past that if parathyroid hormone was okay, that you wouldn't have to worry about the elevated serum calcium. But again, apparently has to be on the, the lower side, has to be overtly low. So like I said, I did not know that. I would just look, when I have tested for it, I would look for an elevated PTH. I guess that's all I wanted to chat about. Again, just a interesting conversation. And once again, I did this just because over the years, I have had a lot of people ask about the parathyroid gland and you know if there's any natural solutions. And, and again, for primary, there isn't. For secondary, so again, if someone has elevated serum calcium that's not related to benign adenoma, then there's a solution. But again, that's not really a parathyroid problem. But so if someone has secondary hyperparathyroidism, as she discussed, then yeah, you could do things naturally. But if it's a benign adenoma, as far as I know, there's no solution. But like I said, if anybody has had success or knows someone who's had success treating a benign adenoma naturally, um, someone who had primary hyper or yeah, had primary hyperparathyroidism, definitely let me know. But anyway, I hope you found this episode to be extremely valuable, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode. I want to let you know about a product called Hepatomune Supreme, which is a unique supplement that has a rare combination of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, milk thistle, and schisandra to support the liver. And it also has a few mushrooms that can help support the immune system, including cordyceps, which has both immune modulating and adaptogenic properties and is great for those with Graves' disease and Hashimoto's. To learn more about Hepatomune Supreme, visit savemythyroid.com forward slash liver support.